a clock called the Black Boy Clock with an explanatory plaque that foregrounds horology rather than slavery. Indeed, there is absolutely no reference whatsoever to the Age of Enlightenment and the engendering of an ideology of justificatory racism, nor to the symbolism of the black boy being the relentless slave of time. Hello and welcome back to Amplify FM, a podcast from local grassroots media organisation Amplify Stroud. The clip you just heard was from local peripatetic historian Stuart Butler talking to us in early 2020 about the black boy clock, the racist 18th century caricature of a black child standing over the top of Stroud Town, bright red lips, tobacco leaf skirts, club in hand and tethered to the wall by its neck. People of colour across Stroud have been speaking out about the impact of the clock's presence looming over their daily lives, resulting in the council launching a public consultation on the clock's future, alongside calls to move the clock to a more appropriate place, such as Stroud's museum in the park. Discussions around the clock have become a source of a significant amount of controversy both on a local level and now a national level too, particularly after the intervention of Stroud and Peace with Ron Bailey, who described a certain minority of people with loud voices who have a unquenchable desire to be constantly finding things to be outraged at, also deploying tropes such as council culture and tearing down statues. However, after she had cited her work against online abuse with anti-racism charity Kick It Out, Kick It Out CEO Tony Burnett has said that he would remind Miss Bailey that her work with Kick It Out on online anonymity does not give her a free pass to undermine anti-racist groups. So, with so much heat involved in this discussion, we thought personally to catch up with Stuart again, who has himself been working with the council to better understand the clock, to discuss the clock's origins, its impacts, and the potential future locations for it in much more detail to really understand this issue. So Stuart, thank you again for joining us today. I wanted to start by asking you just to give us a little bit of historical context about the clock, just so that we all know exactly what it is we're dealing with here. Yeah, I'm going to read from the the, uh, the official report from the uh, Stroud District Council website. So the black boy's clock is an unusual example of a jack clock. The jack is a moving figure that strikes the bell on the hour. In this case, the jack is a small black boy holding a club with which the hours are struck. He's very rare in Britain. The clock has the date 1774 on its mechanism. It has undergone restoration. The clock mechanism remains largely as originally made, and that adds to its rarity value. Much of our early information about the clock comes from the book Notes and Recollections of Stroud, written by Paul Hawkins Fisher, published in 1871. From Fisher, we learn that the clock, which he describes as, quote, having a large dial face, and the figure of a Negro boy with a bell before him, on which he sounded the hours with a club, unquote, were made by a clock and watchmaker, John Miles. Church records indicate that Miles was born in 1754 and lived his life out in Stroud. Miles does not seem to have been a particularly notable craftsman. Fisher rather willingly wrote that the clock 
quote, was the greatest noise, actual or metaphorical, the watchmaker ever made in the world, unquote. The origins and inspiration of the design of Mars' clock are unknown. The clock was restored in the 1970s. The restorer is quoted in the Stroud News and Journal in 1974 as saying, one arm is missing and quite frankly, the head is rotten. It's all made of wood, of course, but I'm sure something can be done with it. The clock was in bad condition again by the 1990s and underwent another phase of restoration completed in 2004. I then move on to number nine, conclusions. And it starts by saying that the Blackwoods clock has this uh, almost unique value. It has a high horological significance in technical and design terms, as well in terms of reality value. But then, of course, it says, the clock and statue have been in Stroud for approximately 240 years. The clock and associated statue, therefore, can be considered to have an historic interest as lasting features within the life and fabric of the town. However, there is, without any doubt, an association either directly or indirectly with the slave trade and colonialism, and this cannot be ignored. And in terms of, because obviously this, so this report is is one of the first examples of real kind of, the first examples I've seen of real kind of detailed research into into the clock in this context. What context is is put there at the moment? I was, I suppose, a bit shocked, really in terms of my naivety. About six years ago, I started to look at the um, the way that heritage was presented in, in, in the town and went around looking at all the different information boards to see what sort of messages they gave about the place, what was missing, and so on, what, what was the dominant discourse. And as I cycled and walked around the town, it's then that the little plaque there outside the, uh, the building by the school beneath the statue took my eye. And of course, the clock is all about the about the horological significance and, and, it, and its restoration. And that's all that's mentioned on the plaque. There's no context. It, it reflects its time, I suppose, when that plaque was put up. There, there perhaps there wasn't quite so much curiosity and an inquiring mind about wider global context. So at the, at the moment, there's absolutely nothing about that final paragraph, which I read from, which is about the uh, context, the zeitgeist of colonialism and the zeitgeist of the Enlightenment with its uh, ideology of racism. It, at the moment, is is about horology and watchmaking. And, and in terms of the kind of the clock itself, I mean, what kind of racist um, caricatures is it drawing upon directly? I've got to say, you know, Dan, Dan Guthrie has spoke very lyrically and meaningfully about the impact of the sight of that statue upon a person of colour and the way it is such a racial caricature. And, and what struck me the other day is that, um, so I want, I want to read this to you because it, it answers your question, I think. It's almost as if the black boy clock is an unwitting personification of the triangular trade, the scarlet lips connoting British textiles, voyaging down to Northwest Africa, the boy himself passing through the door of no return, chained and manacled on the middle passage, the tobacco leaves from the plantation where he was enslaved until his death, the tobacco voyaging back to Britain on the third leg of the triangle, and now a jack clock on the treadmill of time. So it's a racial caricature in terms of physiognomy, grotesquery, 
It also has these tobacco leaves suggestive of transatlantic trade. And probably, or possibly, of course, when the Americas, the United States didn't exist, and there were the 13 colonies with the tobacco plantations in Virginia and so on. Uh, but it's only struck me, as I say the other day, as I thought about it, that not only is it a racial caricature with all that goes with that, but it's also an unwitting personification of the triangular trade. And that's why I think I've moved from this position of museums of the streets, which I thought was, you know, a kind of cool way to go about ensuring that the past was accessible to everybody. I've moved from museums in the streets to the notion that I'd like to see within Stroud Museum an area allocated to an exploration of colonialism, imperialism, enslavement, and local connections. It's a really interesting point because one of the ways um, I remember the first time we met properly is on it was on one of your kind of colonial history walks where you take people around Stroud and it's exactly what you say it's like the museum mm-hmm. in the street and then since then I mean we were both interviewed for for ITV about about the anti slavery arch and the history behind that mm-hmm. and then um, yeah, yeah. Um, but the key thing that that kind of comes across of all of these is that we have these kind of physical monuments that then links into Stroud's own connections to to the slave trade to colonialism to how much we've kind of built ourselves and kind of benefited from it. Um, can you speak to that just a little bit, um, just in terms of how we can use the Black Boy Clock, we can use that in a museum um, as a way to actually, as a vehicle almost to kind of actually understand the wider um, the wider context of Stroud and what that what that context is? Well, I suppose, firstly, the, the tobacco leaves would be quite interesting in the sense that the tobacco was grown up at Winchcombe. The soldiers from Charles I and from the Commonwealth under Cromwell and Charles II, as recorded in Samuel Pepys' diary, rode down the, the growers of, of, of tobacco. So, so you, you have a link, oddly, with tobacco, with, with Virginia, with uh, imperialism, with monopolies, and, and the destruction of, 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 of a local industry and local trade. So I just thought there with tobacco. If we look at Strand Scarlet, we could be looking at uh, the Iroquois, we could be looking at the East India Company, and we could be looking at the fact that it seems counterintuitive, does it not, to think that some of that cloth didn't go to Bristol and didn't possibly go down to Northwest Africa. The empirical evidence is, isn't observable, uh, but it, it seems to me, as I say, counterintuitive to think some of that cloth didn't go. Anyway, of course, Stroud Scarlet clothed the... Um, the British Army. And I'm just going to talk now about August 1834 and abolition. Uh, I've read recently, Slave Empire, How Slavery Built Modern Britain by Patrick Scanlon. And, and we all know, and we're all proud of, uh, of that date, August 1834, up there on the, on the arch near Archway School. And it's easy to forget, of course, that abolition in 1834 didn't mean freedom. It was apprenticeship, not freedom for adults. That, that, was, that freedom was suspended, wasn't it? This is what happened. On August the 1st, 1838, more than 800,000 people thought that they were finally free. And what happened is that Edward Stanley, the minister, sent a circular to the colonial governors of the slave empire 
Apprenticeship, he explained, quote, was a temporary provision for the continued cultivation of the soil and the good order of society until all classes should gradually fall into the relations of a state of freedom. Well, what happened, of course, is that many of the enslaved were under the illusion that they were totally free. Strikes followed, demands for freedom and wages in Jamaica, and the 39th Regiment was called into action. Two companies under the command of Sir Henry MacLeod, quote, the strikers faced with ranks of armed redcoats returned to work, and MacLeod left behind one of his two companies to maintain order. In Guyana, a thousand apprentices gathered in the churchyard with demands for wages. Redcoats were called into action, quote, faced with the redcoats, the apprentices dispersed, unquote. Redcoats were used in Montserrat and Nevis too. Quote, once it was clear that the army would break strikes, apprentices retreated to slowdowns and small-scale resistance, old weapons from the days of slavery. So obviously, um, we're, we're proud of, of that arch, but there's a hidden history there. And, 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 and now we wander off to the hidden history that we talked about before when we went there. And of course, that's the, the local people who benefited from uh, compensation for the abolition of slavery in 1834. Uh, and, and we know there's a surprising figure of the Reverend Oysterham up at Sheepscombe who, um, who owned a slave. And he, he, that fine Christian gentleman, he's, he's, um, he has a brass plaque in, in, in the church praising him for his Christian benevolence. But there's a, there's a backstory there. But I, I suppose the obvious person would be Samuel Baker up at Lippiot. And, and when you go to uh, Baker's uh, Key at Gloucester, of course, um, that, that nub, that focus, that hub, of uh, Gloucester's local industrial revolution around there, uh, of course, was funded by uh, compensation that was paid to Samuel Baker up at Lippiot. Um, the Great Western Railway, Bristol to, to London, which obviously affects us because we have a branch line from Swindon through Stroud. And, and the, you know, those merchant ventures and all that who did so well in Bristol from abolition in 1834, huge funds for that direct line for Brunel's God's Wonderful Railway. Chalford and its links, as we know, with the East India Company that we've talked about, and, and your work on Longford's Mill and uh, its connection with the East India Company. And um, that, 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 all that is missing at the moment. As, as you know, I've walked from Chalford through to Longford's Mill recently, and, and we know that that local landscape is, is as it was, as it were, intertwined with the, through the Keynesian multiplier effect with India, and yet nothing, there's no explanation of that anywhere unless you beaver around in the way that we have done. And, and at any one moment, of course, the past, the present, and the future, as it were, are sitting side by side. And it, I do feel as though we're moving into a new era where we're a younger generation and, and a more diverse society that's feeling more confident and articulate wants to see that information available publicly, rather than having to depend upon the likes of us beavering away, revealing a hidden past. There's always value in beavering. But that is, um, because obviously, I mean, I learned so much of what Amplify's done in terms of looking at kind of Stroud's colonial history, looking at looking at the links to the East India Company and, and this cloth, using your research directly to kind of expose how many slave traders from here benefited from abolition, how it's you know, benefited the town. I can always remember when I was about 12 or so when I first saw the clock. I remember my own kind of like personal 
just confusion really as to why I wasn't wasn't racially literate in in any sense of the word, and I I, I just couldn't understand. I, I saw something like I recognised as racist, but I was so kind of confused as to why it was kind of there. And again, I remember having the same reaction when you took us up there for the, for, for the walking tour and explained it. And I just wonder what what kind of other reactions have you seen from people as as you've done these tours, or have you just kind of talked to friends etc. about it? Well, I had a conversation in in the street today with somebody who who just um, you know talking about the clock. And I think what we're looking at here, that what I said to her is that people, I think, don't necessarily have a consistent view where everything is logical. And there's nothing wrong with that, I suppose. And people don't, a lot of people, I think, have a, a changing view. It's not immutable. It's not cast in stone. Well, in the main, of course, the people who've gone on many of my walks would be predisposed to um, find the statue and the offensive caricature. Having said that, you then get those debates about, oh, should it go into the museum or should there be a version of retain and explain? And then, of course, you, you do get people whose point of view is that you, you shouldn't interfere with history and, and, and that kind of perspective. And I'd say that, that, that that's the sort of tripartite view that I think exists across groups that I've taken walking, because I haven't just taken people who necessarily agree with me. And so I'd, I think those are the three, the three main perspectives. In, into the museum, with the development of the museum and the learning area there about colonialism, imperialism, enslavement. Leave it where it is with explanatory plaques or don't interfere with the past. I think there's a simplification that those are the three main views. And it'll be quite interesting because I remember uh, there's a group of women, I think they were all 70 plus, yeah, we had good discussions up there, and I, I, I would say that taking taking them as an example, rather than people who go with me because they're predisposed to agree with agree with our perspective, within that you know, that tripartite series of perspectives I just talked about were, were firmly in evidence there within that group. And and my last reply to your question is that when I when I first took a walking group there, it was part of the Stroud Festival, the Fringe Festival, and about probably about six years ago. And it was called a Weavers and Workhouse Walk. And we met in the um, alehouse, where there's that huge plaque about the benevolence of the poor law guardians. And um, we, there were 100 people. I mean, it was, it was kind of ridiculous, really, 100 people. And we went up Nelson Street through and, and then um, up to the, the cemetery and, and a presentation about, about the workhouse and... Um, the pauper's path and all that kind of thing. But we, we stopped opposite the black boy clock. Um, but, but I think then, not to my shame, but, but we're all on a learning curve and I was probably talking more then about representation of the past, representation of history, heritage and counter heritage, possibly with a more class basis rather than class and race. And, and then our focus was, was really on those heritage plaques and what they said. If I had more time to mix around those 100 people, then who knows what we might have disentangled. But when you've got 100 people and you're leading them and all that kind of thing. I've noticed when we're kind of engaging with this online, there's a lot of, this is where you get you get a, much, a, a pool of much angrier people kind of in the comment sections of et cetera, et cetera, fighting against council, council culture, kind of a very small minority um, of people with kind of loud voices and, and the ideas of, of statues and things like the clock being torn down. How do you think that kind of, 
much more kind of antagonistic reaction to to term discussions around the clock actually chimes with the conversations you've had with people in the streets? Well, I think the description by Jonathan Leo and the Guardian of social media as a, as a performative platform for the fetishization of conflict is, is quite a reasonable one. But I, I'd like to think that, perhaps I'm being naive here, you need to have the dialogue and a lexicon of understanding to know why this history took place and look how we can bring people together. So from my point of view, I think a lexicon of understanding, a lexicon of dialogue is the way to go. And looking up all those synonyms for understanding or for dialogue and thinking of that vast lexicon of words that exist, that to me, in all my naivety, is is the way that we have to progress, I think. Um, over, over what is uh, becoming an exemplar of, what, of what's happening nationally. So how we get to the position where we can be, and I'm just going to give you a few words, compassionate, considerate, empathetic, forgiving, generous, kindly, perceptive, sympathetic, discerning, forbearing, kind, patient, sensitive, responsive, showing awareness, comprehension, discernment, education, enlightenment, expertise, and so on. How we can get to that position, of course, it's tricky because um, you, you find an enormous number of people, and we're probably guilty of it ourselves, who believe that they're being objective. And of course, it's a, a polyphonic, not necessarily a cacophony, but a polyphonic series of definitions of objectivity here about the statue. And um, it, it, it just strikes me that whatever happens, and of course, this all this may be a paper exercise because of, um, you know, the, the Oliver Dowd and, and, and um, Robert Jenrick saying that, you know, this would obviously, if anything, would have to go to historic England and, and then, you know, there's the retain and explain um, point of view of, of, of the government. So all this may be a paper exercise anyway. Um, but I, I, I would hate to see the town riven and divided so that it becomes a, 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 a kind of exemplification of a, of, of, a, of a binary town and a divided town. So that's why in all my naivety, my reply to your question there was, um, Jamie, was about a lexicon of understanding and, le- and a lexicon of dialogue. And I will always try to do that and follow that. Yeah, and I think that's, especially given the, the um, tone of debates seemingly that is played out in, in different articles, et cetera, I think that's a very... relevant point i just wanted i know you kind of touched on it before as well um but i really liked your idea of having this as like a center point and then like a wider section of the museum which kind of explains stroud's kind of colonial history um and really looks kind of more in detail as ourselves and at the the town we all call home so what in the future do you think should happen to the clock and then if that is a museum as i think you alluded to earlier like how how do you think that could work and what would the benefits um, of that be in comparison to right. okay. into a street? Well, I think it's a, uh, you know, a big assumption to make that, that it will end up in the museum, but, but imagine that it did. Well, I think the, the, the staff there um, would, would, would assume, I think they would be on, on board with, with, with what we're talking about. I, mean, I can't speak for them. I'm, I'm not, uh, perceptive enough, and I don't have the skills set, as they say, to to 
really imagine here what 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 that would look like because um you'd, you'd have to have would you not a whole body of people with a variety of skills there to suggest artifacts to suggest text to suggest imagery and suggest recordings and suggest dialogue debates and so on so in in, in, in and and how traditional how modern and all the rest of it um so so I, I can talk in terms of content. I talked about that earlier on, but in terms of presentation form, I, I would leave that to other people. But um, I mean, what we're essentially talking about, are we not, is that, that we, we're questioning through this discussion whether such a thing as local history exists in the sense that the, the global and the imperial are, all, are always they're omnipresent. And it's how, as you know, when we go out walking, we try to slip down those wormholes of time to um, connect with that hidden imperial and global history. And, and as, as a brief reply, as a synopsis, it, to me, that museum would be about revealing the global within the local. That would be the theme. And, and I'd like to think that um, it wouldn't just be within the museum, the things that we do, those, the, the informative, the performative walks, the peripatetics, as John Selwell put it, the radical democratic peripatetics, those could happen. And, um, and as to the notion, which I had myself, you know, sometimes I do think, you know, museums, you know, they can be for the, you know, bourgeois. Well, our, our job is to stop museums being regarded as uh, a, a cultural privilege for the educated and the informed. Um, and we have to ensure, we have to work to, to make it a, a democratic and democratic and attractive cultural institution, which people will they'll just go to, everybody will go to. And it may well be, of course, that an unwitting consequence of, of if, if the statue did go to the museum, that that would encourage people who'd never been to a museum to go there and just to see what's happened to it. And who knows what, what that might do for them. It might whet their appetite and go around the whole museum and other museums as, as, after that. So, in fact, it, it, it could attract people in rather than it being enclosed and isolated. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, um, I think that's a really great way to uh, a way to see it, in a sense, a way to kind of really highlight the, the importance of what a museum can do. I did want to give you one opportunity to do a shout out actually. So in terms of the banner that you kind of, you've done this research that you run these walking tours on under, um, that's under the Radical Stroud banner. Do you want to say quickly what it is and what you do um, and where people can find out more? Well, we're, we're, yeah, I, I mean, with, um, with Charlotte Rooney, we're, we're developing um, an offshoot of Radical Stroud is uh, decolonizing Gloucestershire. So, so developing a, a a website with resources about, about that. And, and uh, I'm in the process of um, breaking down a lot of those resources into, into question and answer stuff that, that could be used by the community at large so that families, if they want to educate themselves at home, inform themselves at home, question reality at home, they can do that. So I'm, I'm trying to um, I'm trying to turn it, turn the resources into Socratic dialogue rather than, oh, this is where you walk. So there's decolonizing Gloucestershire, there's Radical Stroud, and, and there's also the Topographer's Arms, which again is a website about how walks and talks 
that we do. Uh, so those are the three three main media, I suppose, that uh, that we use. Awesome. Um, and just for my part, I have learned so much from Radical Stroud and also from the walks, and so much of that is obviously fed into Amplify's work. So I can't recommend it enough. If you'd like to know more about the clock, you can find the council support on the Stroud District Council website, and we would really encourage you to complete their consultation on what you think should happen to the clock moving forward, and you can find that online as well. There are also further articles on this topic on Amplify Stroud's website, and this is also now covered by national newspapers such as The Guardian and other organisations such as the BBC.